Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stocks for beginners. We commissioned a study of over 35,000 startups, and we're really looking for those critical reasons for failure. And it had to do with a lack of a business model and an inability to attract customers, which again is because you don't have the product and you don't have a customer yet. And related to that, not having enough startup capital. And so then, you know, you're distracted and looking around to try to get enough money so that you can maybe then move forward with creating your product and acquiring the customers. And it just becomes a bit of a death spiral. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. It's great to be able to invest directly in companies listed on the stock market. But how can you participate in the explosive growth offered by early stage startups? the disruptive enterprises that are seeking to change the future. To talk about this, I'm joined by Alice Newhouser. Hello, Alice. Hello, Phil. Alice P. Newhouser is the Chief Financial Officer and Treasurer of Seismic Capital. Seismic Capital Company is an early-stage growth investor committed to identifying, guiding and nurturing, more importantly, nurturing companies seeking to meaningfully disrupt the space in which they work. So, Alice, tell us a bit about your background. Well, it might be a little different from your typical guest. Oddly, three of the four founders of the company, we all were, for whatever reason, intending to become lawyers. And three of the four of us didn't. The fourth actually is a lawyer. So I ended up spending a couple of years working as a paralegal in a law firm to see what I thought about that and wasn't too keen on it. The one thing I sort of did take away was that the lawyers were the ones who did evaluations and gave you all of these different options, but it was the client who got to make the decisions. And I kind of like that piece. <laughs> no responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the the getting to make the decision part of it, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Where instead of just passing it off to somebody, do all that work and then say, okay, no, it's up to you. I like the idea of really being able to take responsibility for how you're going to proceed. So I actually moved out to California uh, to try to get into the entertainment industry and ended up finding my way into working for large production companies that needed financing. And so I became very involved in film financing and ultimately decided that I enjoyed what I was doing, but I didn't think that I had a, a proper foundation for it. So I ended up going to get my MBA while I was working and really was just looking for filling in the blanks. Since I wasn't going to be a, a lawyer anymore, I needed to, I felt, have more understanding about what it was I was doing. And so I ended up spending a number of years doing that. A company that I was working for ultimately filed for bankruptcy, and I was asked to stay on and run the company through the bankruptcy and post-bankruptcy, which undoubtedly sounds like a a dead-end job, but actually ended up being enormously useful for me. I ended up getting a lot of transactions that I was able to be involved in, and it also gave me the opportunity to explore things on my own. And so one of the things I ended up doing while I was doing that was developing and building 
the first ground-up film and television studio complex in the Los Angeles area in 75 years. And ultimately, that really kicked off the current global production facilities and services businesses that, you know, I think people even outside of, of the film industry at this point are fully aware of because they've become such an integral part of how people want to drive business into their local areas. And so funnily enough as well, that bankruptcy experience took me into other distressed companies that various lenders asked me to come in to either liquidate or try to turn around. And that also became an enormously useful learning experience for me because I got to identify where a lot of problems might crop up in businesses and to really have that understanding of how to be forward looking to anticipate what kinds of problems, whether it's cash flow or otherwise, you might run into. So it ended up being, I think, a very useful case study for how you want to run your business as opposed to how you don't want to run your business. And then ultimately, I ended up partnering with my partners on Seismic and started a brand new venture, trying to do things a little bit different from everyone else. I mean, just shaking up this part of the business as well as looking for companies that shake up the businesses. Is your experience in film financing something that you can carry forward to venture capital startups? Because it's something about films as well. You never know what you're going to end up with financially. You know, some films are going to be incredibly successful and other films are not going to be successful at all. Did you bring any of that experience forward to the venture capital space? Yeah, that's interesting. Nobody's ever pointed that out before. And, and I think you're, you're correct. And it goes to both the idea that you don't know what it is and you're taking a flyer, but it's also all of the pieces that underlie that which is understanding that you have lots of different parties who are involved in things and finding a way of planning your way through that. And likewise, I ended up deciding that for somebody like me, who I don't consider very creative, my creativity comes about when there are hurdles or roadblocks and trying to find ways to work your way around. So just as we would run into that on the, the film finance and production and, and delivery side of things, it's the same for these startup companies where you don't know what are going to be the obstacles you're going to come across and it's how you deal with them and kind of a willingness to find that as a useful challenge instead of getting scared or throwing your hands up or saying, I guess we're done. And it's dealing with creative people again as well, really, in this space, isn't it? It is. You're, you're right about that as well. Hopefully, there's also a business component that founders have that they can bring along with them. But as we all know, that isn't always the case. And that's why you need to have a good support system behind you. What is venture capital and how's it been changing? And I guess just to give us a bit of a, a background on this is venture capital is a space that only incredibly wealthy, sophisticated investors up until now have had access to. So how are you seeing this space and how it's changing? And especially on the financing side. It's a really interesting question. And I guess just, you know, for people who are listening who might not have an idea that this is private equity, essentially, right? So it's not debt. It's somebody who you're going to actually invest your cash into their company because you think it'll be interesting or worthwhile or whatever it is. And as you mentioned, the problem has been that most venture capital companies are funds. And so there are a limited number of investors that they can have in their fund. And as a result, in order to have enough capital to be worthwhile, you need to have those investors come in with pretty large capital infusions. So it, by definition, limits the number of people who have 
access because they have to have a lot of capital that they can invest. And they also have to, especially in those cases, they have to be investors who are accredited. And that means that they have to meet certain benchmarks of either income or wealth. And again, for somebody, particularly somebody who's younger, unless they've inherited some money or had some other lucky success, you just don't have that ability to meet those benchmarks. And so therefore, even if they were available on an open basis, you still couldn't qualify to get in. And I would say somewhat as a result of that, I think that venture capital has generated a bit of a bad reputation, thinking of it as vulture capital. And likewise, it is highly risky. But you know, it really is dependent on who are the people involved, just like any other venture that you get into, right? How responsible are they? What are their objectives? How are they going to meet them? But I think the thing that has been the, the biggest game changer is really looking at that concept of risk and you know how risky is it compared to other asset classes. And I think that a lot of that disconnect has come from the belief that venture capital is really just the seed capital as opposed to various kinds of early stage investing. So you're at that point at which it is the highest risk point. And so I think as a result, it has gotten a bit of a, a negative reputation that it hasn't earned. At what stage are the companies that you're looking at? Are they right at that seed capital stage or are they already generating revenue or is it a combination of both? Yeah, it tends to be a bit of a, a combination of both. We're looking for a product and generally a client as well. So that doesn't mean that they have to be generating any kind of substantial revenue, but they need to have moved past the place where they just have a great idea. And that was really an important part in how we were developing all of this. When we were first looking into this, we commissioned a study of over 35,000 startups, and we're really looking for those critical reasons for failure. And it had to do with a lack of a business model and an inability to attract customers, which, again, is because you don't have the product and you don't have a customer yet. And related to that, not having enough startup capital. And so then, you know, you're distracted and looking around to try to get enough money so that you can maybe then move forward with creating your product and acquiring the customers. And it just becomes a bit of a death spiral. So we come in after that. We still like to be early stage so that we can both provide the financing, but also the, as you were mentioning, the support systems that we can help to put in place to give people a, a better opportunity for success. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's go through the criteria for seismic's investment in these companies. You've got pretty strict criteria, don't you? Well, uh, we do. As I said, we, we sort of have a product and a customer. We have a full due diligence so that we're looking at the market. We're looking at who they are. We're looking at what the competitive landscape is, as well as valuation. And those things, we actually have third parties who we've hired to do that so that we don't just fall in love with a company and allow that to 
bias the way that we might be interpreting things. So we, we make sure that the due diligence piece is done as well as having the, the personnel due diligence done. So having those pieces in place and having a product and a customer, we want to make sure that there's somebody who we think is really going to make a difference. They're going to shake up their sector and really provide both the company and us an opportunity for something pretty significant. But on top of that, it's also very important to us who the founders are, what kind of people they are, how they operate their businesses, how they treat their customers, how they treat their employees. ESG focus is important to us, and we want it to be important to the people who are bringing in under our umbrella. Apart from the financial support, you are nurturing these companies. And what's the shape of this nurturing? How do you nurture? What extra value do you provide these companies? Can you give us a specific example? Yeah, actually, there are a lot of examples. Really, what we want our founders to do is to focus on getting that product out to the customers and building that business. And so what we do is offer them the opportunity not to worry about all of the other pieces. So that's why we have it structured that we actually acquire the companies and they come in to our company. They're still going to get you know, their financial benefits that they would as if we had just been a basic investor. But by being part of our company, they get to offload the extraneous work. So they don't have to deal with human resources and payroll and accounting and tax preparation and compliance. All of that we manage on their behalf. So they can really focus on that business. At the same time, we have a pretty extensive board of advisors. And we were very particular in the, the people who we brought on board because we wanted them to represent lots of different areas of expertise, as well as their deep, I know this is a word nobody knows anymore, but Rolodexes, <laughs> so that in whatever way the various founders were going to need some level of support, we would be able to immediately be able to address that as well as go out on a wider basis. And then, of course, we as the top management also have our own networks and business experience. How long has Seismic been going for and how many companies are there in the portfolio? We started July 1, well, officially July 1, 2020. It took a very long time to work our way through the SEC qualification process. They did not have an understanding of what our business was because nobody had ever done what we were doing through a reggae offering. And so we came to the realization that ultimately they were trying to put us in a bucket that we didn't belong in. And so we ended up being able to have a direct conversation with them and then be able to address their concerns in the filing we had subsequently. But in the meantime, we, <laughs> we spent a lot of time trying to get them to understand where we were coming from. So it's a very unique model, isn't it? It is, yeah. So it is a unique model. As we say, we're not aware of anybody else who's done anything like this sort of generally, but more specifically in the reggae space. Sorry, just um, before you go on, what is reggae? That's not that uh, beautiful beat from Jamaica, is it? <laughs> That's what it's sounding like. <laughs> it does sound like, yeah. So it's a Regulation A offering. And so as opposed to what people have more standardly known of where you're actually qualifying and getting approved by the SEC to go out and raise private capital, this was really developed as a way for smaller businesses to get earlier financing. So a lot of people are very familiar with, for instance, a Regulation CF, the crowdfunding. 
And that was for very small businesses. And so this is sort of a middle ground between a regular offering and a regulation CF. So for us, it means that we can actually get investments from non-accredited investors. So as I mentioned earlier on, for those people who don't qualify by income or by wealth to be able to invest in a private company. And so generally, this has been with you know, very specific companies that somebody's looking to finance that does one thing. And what we were looking to do was to be able to invest in and acquire various companies. And that was sort of the, the novelty of it that the SEC didn't understand. They weren't sure if we were actually trying to come in as a backdoor SPAC, which definitely were not. And so it just means that now, as we were talking about earlier, venture capital, which had never been available for people who didn't meet the certain income and wealth thresholds, would have an opportunity to invest in venture capital. Quite recently, PitchBook has come out with an analysis that showed that venture capital returns on a one-year rolling basis surpassed 65%. So it's good that uh, someone's doing some democratization here and making this sort of thing available to um, ordinary investors. Yeah, and that was really what the objective was. Uh, you know, How could we make this available for everybody who can qualify for it and, and has an interest in it? So yeah, that was really the genesis of it. And so we're out being our seismic selves for ourselves, and then we'll do it hopefully for the companies who would bring in. Yeah, and seismic's good for California as well, as well as, you know, what these companies are going to be doing. <laughs> yes, exactly. So tell us about some of these enterprises. Um, what are some of the stories behind this fund? Yeah, it's interesting. We started off being pretty agnostic. So just opening the doors and, and hearing what we could hear. And there were lots of interesting companies, and there still are, We've found that some of them fall into some similar buckets, such as fintech and medtech, process improvement, and some of which cross within them. And so it's been interesting seeing the, the variety that we have out there. So a couple of particularly interesting ones I can mention right now. It's a digital therapeutic company that's focused on women's mental health that takes them through their entire life cycle from adolescence to old age. The founder's just amazing with a deep experience in healthcare and life sciences industry. And she has done a remarkable job of navigating the development and regulatory processes. And is just a, a, an incredible leader as well as a really wonderful person. Another great company has developed a business to serve the unbanked and underbanked communities, which in the U.S. represents about 40% of African-Americans and 30% of Latinos. And that lack of access creates enormous barriers to people, clearly on a daily basis, as well as costs for managing everyday matters. So you think about throughout the pandemic, when people really were not accepting cash very much. So they were looking for credit cards or ACH or Venmo or something like that. But if you don't have a bank account that can underlie those transactions, you can't participate. And even thinking about, you know, when the government was quickly sending out relief money, that would go straight into somebody who had a bank account. But if you don't have one, then how are you going to get those funds? And then how are you going to convert them into cash? So it's a pretty meaningful thing on a day-to-day -day basis. But there are also long-term costs. Bank accounts are part of that foundation that's required for wealth creation. So you need to be able to get loans so you can have a credit history. And so revolving credit like credit cards and car loans are really out of reach without a bank account. 
And we're also just think that, again, this founder is just a really dynamic person who's dedicated so many years to cracking this nut. And we are just really excited to partner with him. Now, I know you've got processes in place so that you don't fall in love with companies, but um, you do have certain feelings of affection for some of these uh, enterprises. What's one particular example? Well, it's interesting because one of the ones who I fell in love with, we ended up not being able to invest in because our interest in them really demonstrated to their earliest investors what a really great company it was. (laughs) (laughs) And they decided that they were just going to keep that to themselves. I always thought that was an interesting change of pace. So part of what interested me in the company was the simplicity of what they were doing. I tended, notwithstanding being involved in the film industry for so long, I was always on the, what I call the less sexy side. And I'm very drawn to things like that. And so this was a, a business that was doing essentially process improvement through being able to monitor and manage power usage. So it's not on the power generation side, so not putting up solar panels. But if you have solar panels, then how do you want to direct where that power is being used? And so you, you go to, you know, like a McDonald's. And so, you know, what's the best way for having your lights and the refrigeration units and all of those things. And like I said, a very simple model, but if you went out to each McDonald's, that would be really costly customer acquisition for something that doesn't actually cost those customers a whole lot of money. So by finding a way to access all of them on a higher level, right? So if you have someone who's a large franchisee, or if you go to McDonald's, and they can then push it down into each of the different companies that are being managed by individual franchisees or or managers, you're providing a benefit to every one of those companies on a basis that they can absolutely afford, and yet you're doing it on a volume that makes it worthwhile for you. And everybody's benefiting because they're managing their businesses for less money and using less power. And I just, I love that company. <laughs> and you missed out on them. <laughs> That's terrible. And we missed out on them. But, you know, I let them know when they left that, uh, you know, if they ever needed anything. And I would love to stay. The door's always open. <laughs> yeah, because you never know with anything. What's the time horizon with these companies that you're looking at? I mean, that's obviously not going to be something that's going to be paying off within the next six months or or year, presumably. You know, it actually varies by company. So for instance, that company I just mentioned, it probably would have been ripe for acquisition within, I don't know, 12 to 18 months, maybe. You know, if you think about Microsoft or Google, where they've come to realize that they're not very good at innovating at this point. Right. So they're happy to to have somebody else go out, demonstrate that they have a really interesting product or service, get that going, and then they'll come in and buy them. But they don't want to and really can't manage that process for actually starting it up. So you don't have to have necessarily gotten that far down the path before somebody who's in that business identifies it as something that would be really useful for them to internalize. On the other hand, others, as you mentioned, you know, it's going to be out there for three or four or five years before we have some kind of a liquidity event relating to it. But there'll be a nice mix, I think, of some that are shorter term and some that are longer term. In terms of our at least initial investment horizon with them, we start off with two years of investment capital. 
And we did that because we didn't want to have everything benchmarked so that as a founder, you can get stuck in a little bit of the hamster wheel of, I have to achieve this in order to get any more money, even though that might not be where your business should be going right now. Maybe you should be adapting to something else, but you feel locked into that. And at the same time, if that company who's been financing you doesn't have a follow-on commitment, you're thinking, okay, as soon as I hit that benchmark, I got to run out and try to find more money again. So both of those things, once again, are detracting from what we view as the core business, which is to grow your business and acquire customers. So we look at things every six months and see, do we need to be modifying you know, what the cash needs are? And, and just build in flexibilities so that the companies can do what's best for building the company. Hmm. What's the long-term pathway for these companies? Are you looking to have them listed, acquired, or just hanging on to them as revenue generators? What's the long-term path? All of the above. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> Agnostic on outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. I personally think that sometimes people don't put enough value on cash flow, probably because I was involved with dealing with broken companies that I always love cash flow. And there are fewer and fewer opportunities nowadays to have companies that you can actually get some cash from, right? Because people don't really dividend the way they used to. You don't have utilities that, that are providing that, that kind of income. And so cash flow, I think, is, is always nice. As I mentioned, there are companies that I think are just going to be acquired because it's a nice fit within that industry. And then some we just may spin off as an IPO. So there are lots of opportunities. And that's, again, part of the benefit that we love of, of having this organized the way it is, is we have flexibility on, on how we manage things. I sometimes mention to people that this is a little bit like Berkshire Hathaway without the valuation <laughs> and without Warren Buffett. And they deal with mature companies and we deal with early stage companies. But the idea is the same, which is you're a holding company and you're there to embrace and empower the companies that you have invested in. And seek them out. Yeah, and seek them out. You know, if I could have bought stock in C's, I would have, but I can't <laughs> buy stock in Berkshire Hathaway. So, <laughs> And um, how do you manage risk across a diversified portfolio of these companies? Well, as I mentioned, we start off with having due diligence and we're actively involved. So first of all, we're actually managing their books. So we certainly have an idea of what's going on there. And we're involved in their day-to-day -day operations. And it also means that they have the benefit of people like us and our advisors who are, who are looking downstream and evaluating what risk might be. I mean, it's interesting because I think even within, say, the, the med tech sector for companies that we're looking at there, they are such different kinds of businesses that they're not even subject to the same risk as each other. So even though they're both in the medical field, one might be more dependent on you know, external forces and one might be more dependent on internal forces or whatever it might be, but they, they're just not subject to all of the same risk. Obviously, we've seen in the last couple of years between bombing countries and a pandemic that there are lots of external risks out there, but for standard business matters, 
they all are just different. They're approaching things in a different way. And from my perspective, it's sort of the benefit of not buying a single stock, which carries so much risk, but you're buying a stock that encompasses, you know, an entire portfolio of stocks, essentially. So if someone's considering an investment in Seismic, how would they be looking at the valuation of their investment? So we actually, as a result of being SEC regulated, we file different forms with the SEC on a semi-annual and annual basis. So people get a view into what the valuations are there. And we have to maintain actual valuations so they can see how they're doing. Our intention is to be able to get cash back into our investors' hands as a result of liquidity events on occasion. Ideally, what we'd like to do is return the the full value of their investment and let them ride the upside with the rest of it. And then on a longer-term basis, we expect that there will be a, a decent market that can be made in trading the shares. It's part of that growing sector in fintech that I think you mentioned in the beginning, where there are more outlets for being able to really make a market in various types of investments. So investing in units of seismic, what does that entitle investors to? Well, actually, we are just a regular holding company. Mm -hmm. So there aren't units. People are buying shares, just as you would be with anybody else. But like a private equity kind of investment? Well, just like if you were buying a share in Google, you're just buying a piece of the company. Although usually, of course, with Google, you're buying it from somebody else, but here you're buying it directly from the company. And are they tradable? So there are increasingly markets that are being created for doing that. So we are not traded on on any exchanges at this point. But the idea was that we all have the same shares of stock. So the founder shares are the same as the investor shares. Nobody is taking out dividends before anybody else. Everybody gets treated exactly the same, and you are just owning a company. No preferential shares. No preferential shares, no special voting shares, nothing. And what's the minimum investment? Minimum investment is $1,000. We worked pretty hard, and, and part of the way we structured ourselves was to make sure that we could be a qualified small business stock. And that means that if people invest in this early stage before our valuation gets higher, we have more investment in there. That if you hold the stock for five years, then your federal capital gains taxes are reduced or eliminated. It's a little hard to tell right now because they're potentially making some changes on that at the SEC. I think there will always be at least a percentage. So it's a nice way to have a tax benefit investment without it actually being in your retirement portfolio, although that's an option as well. So if people want to find out more, where can they find out? about Seismic? They can go to seismic.company. It's not .com, it's (laughs) seismic.company. Fantastic. Alice Newhauser, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Phil. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 